0: Shall we again pray as we turn to God's Word? Father, again we ask for your help and grace to seriously engage with the Word of God. Father, help us for the time where we've thoughtlessly engaged in preaching or in hearing the Word of God and just our mind has been all over the place. Father, help us now to have... Minds that are concentrated on your truth. We thank you, Lord, that you've been so pleased to inspire your word, to breathe out your word. that's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Father, we need all these aspects of the work, the work of the word of God by the spirit of God in our lives. Father, please help us. Father, please again help me to rightly handle the word of truth. Father, enable us to be those who are doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Father, be with us. We commit our time to you. We depend on you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll have this little handout as well, um, session two. I think I will stick largely to these three sections this time to surprise you. Okay, so we're going to look at these three sections where we're moving from what was a brief Old Testament look into sorrow, which we will actually read a bit from Lamentations before we proceed. But uh, we're going to move into the New Testament. Uh, Why I'm doing this, there are many reasons. Okay, there are many. One of those reasons is that sometimes people thinking that in moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, everything because Jesus is there is. Sweetness and light with no difficulties at all. Uh, they think that the Christian life will be some kind of breeze or some kind of floating through the life without difficulty or sorrow. Um, that is sadly mistaken because the Christian life in Old and New Testaments is reflected in both sorrow and joy. And I want to show you a little bit of sorrow in the New Testament building on what we've seen in Lamentations. But can I take you back to Lamentations to remind you from Lamentations 2 of the wall-to-wall relentless sorrow that was there. Uh, and let me read from chapter 2, verse 1 of Lamentations. So this will remind you of something. It'll remind you of Lamentations chapter 1 because it just continues there. Uh, you'll see very much a similarity. It goes like this. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand he set with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughters of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become an enemy. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins all its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget, festival, and Sabbath and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her balances. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line he did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languish together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Well, it's halfway through that chapter, but you get the... the, force of it don't you the fierce force of it so here is wall-to-wall sadness and lament in this case not in all cases in this case uh, the judgment was as a result of their sin wasn't it it's clearly mentioned multiple times it was their rebellion their disobedience their willful turning away from the lord that led to this judgment and this judgment led to this sadness And ultimately, it was in the Lord's hands. He acknowledges that. So even though they could look out and see public enemy number one, the Babylonians and all their might, he saw behind that was the Lord's sovereign control over these things. And the Lord was actually disciplining his people. Uh, The Lord had warned them over generations not to do these things, but to stay in the course of his word. They'd failed to do that generation upon generation, and now he was bringing a serious judgment to bear on them. And that judgment brought sorrow to that nation, which included both a majority who were disobedient and careless and also a remnant of people within that who were faithful to the Lord, like, like the prophet Jeremiah. So that's Old Testament. That's sorrow. If you want to see suffering and sorrow that was not specifically occasioned by sin in the Old Testament, where would you go? Job, exactly. So in the, in the book of Job, you have great suffering, not brought upon him because of the particular standout sin of the man Job. In fact, he was more righteous than anybody else in his own generation. But the Lord had purposes in that suffering in his life. So that's why it's horrific when people see suffering and sadness and say that is because you sin, or somebody in your family sin. when they're not the Lord and they don't know what's going on in your family or your heart or your life. And yet they attribute every suffering, every sorrow to sin. Please never do that. I had a good friend in our old church in Australia whose uh, sister died of cancer and was sadly surrounded by people from her church who all, all told him and her that she was dying, she must have been dying because of her sin. Don't do that. You're not the Lord. You're not the Holy Spirit. You don't know what's going on in the hearts of people. So please avoid that. But here is sorrow. There's no sorrow like their sorrow. The writer to the Lamentation, uh, the writer of Lamentation said, and uh, the prophet Jeremiah, his head was a fountain of tears. So then we move to the New Testament. And, of course, in the New Testament, everything's sweetness and light. There is no suffering in the New Testament. There is no sadness in the New Testament. There is no sorrow in the New Testament. There are no difficulties for the people of God in the New Testament. I've just been lying for the last couple of seconds, at least. Uh, that is not true. So, but I want you to see not only the study of sorrow in Lamentations, and we could have gone to many Psalms and many other places, but I also want to show you these three things about the New Testament. okay. so if you, you know, sorrow in your life uh, here, you're in good company because what was our Lord called in Isaiah 53 He's called the man of sorrows. We'll have a brief look at that. I want to look at the life and ministry of Christ, the man of sorrows. I want to secondly have a brief window into the life of Paul, who was a faithful servant Uh, of the man of sorrows he was faithful in his service for the lord he was fruitful in his service for christ but he also knew much opposition much persecution much suffering and then we also want to see thirdly that the church of the lord jesus christ in that generation and in every generation including our generation will there be suffering will there be sorrow that we experience the sad answer is Absolutely yes. But we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. We have a great God who is at work through all the sorrows and the joys, who is perfecting us and making us more like Christ and preparing us for an eternity without sadness, without any suffering and without any sin. So let me go with you firstly to Isaiah 53. Let's look quickly at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as the man of sorrows. I'm preaching through John's gospel at home in Christchurch at the moment, so uh, my mind is full of things from John's gospel, but let me point you to Isaiah 53 and the clear prophetic um, identification of the Messiah as the man of sorrows. There are many servant songs in the book of Isaiah talking about the servant of the Lord and what he will be like. And uh, here in Isaiah 53, we see the Messiah as the man of sorrows. So, Isaiah 53, let me start from the beginning of the chapter and read a few verses to you. Okay. So, who has believed what he has heard from us? Isaiah 53 1 and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So here is our introduction to this passage on the servant of the Lord. When we think of the servant of the Lord, there are many things on Isaiah that we could think of. I think, Ian, you're going to be dealing or are dealing with some of those, aren't you? Isaiah, you'll get to that. Okay. Preview. Okay. Spoiler. Spoiler. Um, But here in Isaiah 53, it's this this Lord, this servant of the Lord, this one who is actually the Lord himself, uh, and yet he is despised. He's rejected by men. He is a man of sorrows. He is acquainted with grief. He's one from whom men hide their faces. He's despised and not esteemed. So stepping from the Old Testament and the sorrows of lamentations into the New Testament doesn't mean that we put hardship and grief and sorrow behind us. We still have sorrow and hardship and grief. And even in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, he well knew these things. Uh, Think of the life of Christ. Are there any incidents of sorrow in Jesus' life? Let me get, get a bit of response, whether you're used to it or not. Lazarus Sorry? Lazarus' Lazarus's death. And that's where we've got that punchy line, shortest verse in our English Bible at least. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. So here is Jesus who went to Lazarus' tomb, who was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He saw the whole family weeping. He saw all the other mourners weeping around that tomb. And he also wept. Lazarus was a friend of his. Lazarus' sisters were also friends of his. Okay. I will keep on going regardless. Uh, so we have Lazarus and Jesus at that tomb. He's weeping. Okay? Where else? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem. On a few occasions, the scripture we're told the He beholds Jerusalem, he looks at Jerusalem, he he weeps as he considers Jerusalem and the plight of Jerusalem and the sinfulness of Jerusalem. This holy city that we've been talking about in Lamentations is again in a sad state and he weeps over that place. Where else? Sorry? Absolutely. And we'll have a look at Gethsemane in a moment. So uh, our Saviour is weeping in these places, so he is no stranger. To this. Um, so beware a kind of professional Christianity that is plastic, that avoids weeping, that avoids lamentation. There are things that should cause us to weep. There are many things that should cause us to weep. Sometimes the sin in our own lives, sometimes the sin in our families, sometimes people who are departing from the Lord, sometimes our general society and its state far from the Lord. There are many things that should cause us to weep. So we mustn't be plastic Christians who just switch on a, an evangelical grin. Or worse than an evangelical grin, they stiff up a lip, which uh, English people are particularly prone to, I'm told, I say with my mother being English. Um, so you just have a kind of a plastic grin, I'm a Christian, therefore everything must be okay, and we go through it and, and I'm not touched by these things. Of course... And yet, unless you're a stone you're touched by these things and if you're a Christian who is participating in a real relationship with Christ as your Savior the man of sorrow as your Lord your heart will be touched by these things as well. Uh, there are other like uh, other indications in the life of Christ as well but let's go for a moment to Matthew 26. so we'll land in the in the garden here. It's toward the end of Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew 26. Judas has gone off to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. He celebrated the the Passover with his disciples in the upper room. Uh, All this he's foretold the denial by Peter. And here he is, verse 36. How do we find Jesus? By the way, also, as he entered into Jerusalem... Uh, in that triumphal entry with people waving the palm branches and throwing their cloaks on the ground and, and all that incredible noise with thousands and thousands of people there. Uh, in fulfillment of prophecy, he entered on the colt, the foal of a donkey, and goes into that place. And as he comes into Jerusalem, what's he doing? He's weeping. He's described in the Gospels as weeping as he enters that place coming in in for the last week or so of his life, entering into Jerusalem with all the weight of his soon death for our sins uh, on his heart. But here in the garden, the story is a bit further on. Verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter And the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Our Lord, our perfect Lord, our sinless Lord, in perfect obedience, working out the Father's will as he always worked out the Father's will. He always did what pleased his Father. Here he is in that garden. He takes within these closest friends of his amongst the disciples, Peter, James and John. He begins to be sorrowful and troubled. This is part of the life, this, the sinless life of Christ. The sinless life of Christ He's sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And Judas comes into view, leading the soldiers, and he is arrested. But here is our Lord weeping. Here is our Lord describing himself as sorrowful. Uh, He began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he said, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Now, if that doesn't compute with your picture of Christ, the sinless saviour, then I suggest you need to redirect, recalibrate your picture of Christ. Here in the sinless man, there's weeping. Here at the grave of his close friend Lazarus, there is weeping. Here coming into the city, here looking down on the sea at times, there is weeping. This was part of his perfect humanity. This is our saviour. And we're called to be like him. So here is our Saviour, who was indeed, in many ways, the man of sorrows, who was acquainted with grief. We're told in, in, uh, where is it? Hebrews twelve three. Sorry, Hebrews twelve three. Uh, a very interesting thing about our Lord, as the writer to the Hebrews reflects on the Lord and urges us to look to the Lord. Uh, we see this emphasis. Hebrews twelve. Therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's just gone through that, those heroes of the faith, that gallery of faithful believing people in chapter 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let's run, let's run with endurance. Let's run with perseverance. The race that is set before us, looking to, Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and then we see this in verse 3 consider him consider Christ the founder and perfecter of our faith consider him who endured from sinners Such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. There is our Saviour, the sinless Saviour. What's he enduring? Hostility. Hostility against himself. Many points uh, throughout his life, certainly throughout the whole of his public ministry, from beginning to end, there was rejection by his fellow townspeople uh, in Nazareth. There was rejection by many of the Jews. There were people running away from him and, and following him in John 6. There was hostility by the, the high priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and everybody else. There was a, a wall-to-wall hostility. The, the trials he went through, the injustice he went through, the mockery of a trial, the planting of a crown of thorns on his head. He endured the hostility of sinners against himself And we need to consider that we serve a savior, a sinless savior, who was a man of sorrows, who endured hostility against himself. He could have had an easy life, as it were. He could never have come down into this world and taken on that incredible mission of saving his people from their sins, Matthew 121. But he came and he endured all the realities of humanity He endured the fight against sin when he was tempted in the wilderness and many other places and points of his life. And he also endured the continual hostility of sinners against himself. And we're told here, consider him who endured hostility that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What would lead us to grow weary or faint-hearted? Our sin, sometimes. The hostility of people against us the fact that we're swimming against the tide in our society or our culture where many people are going in a very di- different, if not totally opposite direction. And we feel that and we face that. Maybe you face rejection by family members. Maybe you face parting with friends. Maybe you face all these kind of things that believers face in this world. You've endured hostility at times and maybe even that dreadful apathy at times where people have just written you off and turned off and no longer want to be around you because of your faith in the Lord Jesus, at that point, consider him. Remember him, a sinless saviour in a sin-cursed world, a sinless saviour, enduring hostility against him. He's the pioneer. He's the perfecter of our faith. So here is Jesus, the man of sorrows. So as we enter into the New Testament, focused in upon him, Uh, salvation only through Him. We are to walk closely with Him. We're to grow in grace, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18. We're to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Could we put that little statement under your life? Are you growing in grace? Are you growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? First of all, since I don't know many of you, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you turned to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith? Are you trusting in himself, you are trusting in church life or religion or morality. Don't trust in any of those things. Trust in Christ. But if you are trusting in Christ, are you growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ? So here is our sinless savior, the man of sorrows. But as we look at people who who served him faithfully down through the generations, we will also see a lot of sorrow. I'm researching for a a session in early March on the life of John Calvin. I'm going to have to speak for five hours or so on the life of John Calvin. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm wondering how I can cut it down to five hours uh, because there's so much in the life of John Calvin. But there's a lot of sorrow in the life of John Calvin. Uh, there are his mum dying, I think, when he was about six. Uh, being brought up by by dad there's all sorts of things that happen in his life there's points in his life where he he loses his cousin, he loses his best friend through death, there's plague going on and all sorts of things are happening, Uh, there's all sorts of opposition to his ministry, he makes it to uh, safety in Geneva Uh, Geneva sort of goes against him after a few years, he's chucked out of Geneva uh, leaves that for Strasbourg and stays there for a while but it's it's not a peaceful life. Uh, when he went to Geneva, Geneva at first, after persecution in Paris of evangelicals, he thought, "I just want a peaceful life. I just want a place where I can go and study the Word of God and and be involved in engaging with the Word of God and learning what God says in His Word myself." And he's thrown into life in Geneva and a public role in Geneva, and he had all sorts of hassles, uh, just like you and I. He was sick. Much of his life, he had gout and he had this and he had that and all sorts of things he endured. That's what his life like, isn't it? For the servants of Christ, even. They're, they're not sort of holy people who are somehow removed from the sufferings of the everyday life. They're people who go through all those sufferings and struggles, uh, but they go through them with God and, and for the glory of God. Uh, Let me turn you to a couple of passages in Paul's life just to remind you of his opposition and persecution and suffering. Can I turn you to, uh, let me see, there's many places. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 6, please. 2 Corinthians 6. And I'll read from verses 4, 4 to 10. You can almost go anywhere if you're looking for sorrow in the life of the Apostle Paul and struggles and difficulties. Here is one of the places where he opens up. He says. Now's the favorable time. Now's the day of salvation, verse two. He said we put no obstacle in anyone anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry and then from verse four, but as servants of God. So this is what servants of God will endure. These are some of the things experienced by true servants of God, not false servants of God, true servants of God. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. (laughs) So here is a servant of God. What are they doing? They're enduring. They're persevering. They're putting one foot in front of the other. One of the things I loved about one of the statements by William Carey, whose life I absolutely love to read and think about. But William Carey wrote that, there's only one thing I can do. I'm a plodder. I can put one foot in front of the other. Uh, he was a pretty magnificent plodder who had a wonderful mastery of languages and translated the scriptures into many languages and did many wonderful things. But he said, I'm a plodder. I endure. I put one foot in front of the other, and that's what we need to be in essence as believers. And that's what Paul was. We commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions in hardships, in calamities in this version, in beatings, in imprisonments. This is not a great job description, isn't it? This is a job description of an apostle and a servant of the Lord uh, by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments riots, labors, sleepless nights hunger. And then he begins to talk about some of the weapons that God had given him to combat uh, all this opposition by purity, by knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true we're treated as unknown and yet we're well known, as dying and yet behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, they're both together there sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many riches, having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul says, In Christ I possess everything. But in Christ, I also endure through much opposition, hardship, riots, labors, sleepless nights, etc. These are some of the things the, the servant of the Lord faces. These are some of the things faced by the Apostle Paul. Uh, I don't have time, but my mind is flying to the book of Romans. Uh, if you think of the issue of sorrow or distress in Romans, you face the fact in Romans 3, 19, 20 and 23, which tells us that we're all sinners. And the whole world is full of sinners. And then you go to Romans 7 and you see Paul battling against sin in his own life. His own heart He's in that incredible struggle against sin in his own life. And then you go to Romans 8 uh, verses 18 to well, roughly 23. And then in that passage, you've also got a world that's groaning because of the state the world is in. These aren't pretty pictures, but they're realistic pictures of what life is like, even for the believer, even for the servant of the Lord in a world like this. And the Apostle Paul knew the reality of that. Can I turn you from the Lord and his servant, Paul, an apostle, to us? What's it like in the church uh, in every generation? Um, One of the things I love is church history. Um, I think I loved church. I loved history first because it was the only s- subject I got 20 out of 20 on an essay from when I was in the last second last year of high school and I thought wow I really love history <laughs> um, but then I was converted a couple of years later and I began to love the history of God's people, the history of the church and exploring the history of the church so I've sort of made it my aim over my life to this point to read about the history of God's people, the history of the church in all sorts of different generations and in all sorts of different places. And I I love seeing how God has enabled his people to endure, uh, to come to faith in impossible situations and to endure uh, by trusting in the Lord. But here is the church now. And we're the church and on this sheet in front of you, I've, I've called the church, the persecuted and persevering people of the man of sorrows. An accurate description of the church, the persecuted and persevering people of the man of sorrows. We're told in 2 Timothy 3:12 that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, there is opposition that comes in our lives as the people of God, and Christians will know, and do know, uh, intense times or times of intense and prolonged sadness and suffering due to their allegiance to Christ. Now, in some ways here in New Zealand, we're protected from a lot of that. And some of our brethren in many other places know the full force and fury of some of that, some in Muslim lands, some in China, some in many places I could name around the world. And it's good to be familiar with what other parts of the body of Christ are suffering in other places, because we're not the only place and to see that we are indeed the persecuted and we are the persevering people of the man of sorrows. I sometimes think, you know, how sheltered my life has been as a Christian growing up in Australia, living for a while in the UK to do theological study, coming here after ministry in Australia to New Zealand. I've lived in places without intense targeted persecution of Christians. I've had troubles, I've had opposition, I've had that kind of thing, but not in the same way that many of our brethren know in other places. But this is the lot sometimes of the people of God. And, and Jesus said this in John 15. John 15 verses 18 to 20. I think I've written it out in full there. Yes, I have. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So who are we? We're the people of Christ. We're the disciples of Jesus, we're his followers, we're in Christ, we're in union with Christ, we know him, we follow him, we're Christians. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So the Lord said we'll be persecuted as the people of God will be hated as the people of God. Paul said if we desire to be godly people living in this world for Christ, we will also know the reality of opposition, hostility and persecution. Uh, there will be sorrow for us. But in Christ, we need to learn how to respond to that those sorrowful circumstances. And that's what Lamentations chapter 3 will teach us, Lord willing, tomorrow morning. You know, we, we will face sorrow. We can't pretend otherwise. And sometimes it will be great sorrow, and sometimes it will re, will really test us. I remember the first time this came home to me was as a a young Christian in a church in Sydney. Uh, One of the guys in the church was one of our deacons. Um, I knew him pretty well. Um, He was about 10 or 15 years older than I was. And he seemed to be going well. He was a really encouraging brother. Then he hit something in his life. and It was like hitting a wall. Uh, And for years, I I don't even know what it was. I don't know what the issue was, but for years he carried himself differently after that. Uh, He was really struggling in several ways. He kept on faithfully outwardly as a Christian, but it seemed like a lot of the joy had been sucked out of his life. He plodded on trusting in Christ and by the grace of God, over a significant period of time, he came through to the other side and became the joyful Ken Uh, That I knew him to be before and a great contributor to the life of the church. But at some point he just smashed against a wall in his spiritual life. I don't know what the difficulties were, internal, external, but we face many things, don't we? And we've got to be close to Christ and trusting in Christ in those things. We will have much to lament over, but we will also know the grace of Christ in the midst of that. Can I turn you to Hebrews 11 as we draw to a close, please? Hebrews 11. Fantastic chapter on faith. And in this chapter, we have a very interesting section, which you may have overlooked at times, maybe as strong in your head and heart, but We have in chapter 11 this list of those who are people of genuine faith like Abel and Enoch and then lengthy time given to Abraham and then goes through and we have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and we have these people set before us uh, even by faith. People like Rahab the the harlot who did not perish perish for those who were disobedient, uh, etc., And then he says in verse thirty two, What more shall I say? I could go on forever, for for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, I haven't even mentioned these people, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who, through faith, (coughs) conquered kingdoms, who through faith enforced justice, (coughs) excuse me, who obtained promises, who stopped the mouths of lions. Daniel, who quenched the power of fire, who escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness, who became mighty in war, who put foreign armies to flight. Fantastic. And then we go here. These are also people of faith, commendable people of faith we should look to, who encourage us to look to God. Women receive back their dead by resurrection. Well, that's miraculous. But then it says in the same verse, some were tortured. Some of these people with genuine, enduring faith were tortured and being tortured, they refused to accept release. They could have got out of the torture. They could have got out of the pressure cooker, the opposition. If they'd only compromise, if they'd only given up and uh, they didn't, they remained faithful. And they went through torture and they refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others are the faithful, believing people suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They, these faithful people of God were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, Afflicted, mistreated. This doesn't sound like much of an advertisement for join the people of God. But this is the people of God. This is the genuine people of God with real faith in God. They wandered about, they went about destitute, lacking the necessary things. They went about afflicted. They went about mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. The world wasn't worthy to have people like this, the persecuted but enduring people of God in it. Uh, It was a privilege to the world to have people like this walking around in the world and being salt and light where God had placed them. So here is suffering. Here is sadness, destitution, affliction, mistreatment. And these are the true people of God. So we need to be realistic, don't we? I wish I had with me that, that great... ...advertisement that Ernest Shackleton put in one of the newspapers in London... ...where he's trying to get people to come along for his Antarctic um, expedition. I can't remember off off the top of my head, but it's a a really real advertisement. You know, come and enjoy destitution, uh, hope of returning, uncertain. Um, It's going to be really tough, but come and join me and we'll explore the Antarctic. Well, this is come and join with Christ... And there are the wonderful benefits. There is eternal life. There is forgiveness of sins. There's an eternity with God in a place without sin and sorrow and suffering. But there is also the reality that in this life we may face many of these things. And we need to be prepared for it. As Jesus often said in places like Luke 14, there will be a cost. We need to count the cost of following Christ. Is it worth it? Absolutely it's worth it. Abundantly over and over again, it's more than worth it. But there is a cost, and we need to count that cost, and we need to follow Him in that way, even through the sad days. Well, may God give us grace and help to follow Him in the sorrows, and as we will eventually see, also in the joys. Shall I pray? Or oh, yeah. Father, help us. We do think there are magnificent things, Lord, abundant things in knowing Christ, Lord, in eternity and in this life, Lord, we're surrounded by many benefits and blessings and we thank you for each one of them. But we pray, Lord, that you would help us also to be strengthened by your grace and your spirit and through your word to stand firm and to continue uh, even in the difficult days, the sad and sorrowful days. Father, when we are knocked down, we pray that you would give us the grace to stand up again and to keep on going. Father, help us, we pray. We thank you there is much, and we'll turn to that tomorrow in in Lamentations 3, where where the prophet Jeremiah, in the face of all this opposition and sadness and destruction of his city and exile of his people, still looked to you and found grace and help in the midst of that. Father, may we find grace and help in Christ. May we be encouraged to look to you in sorrow, in trouble, and in joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.